page 1025 if you're using a Bible under the seat in front of you. Let's pray together. Lord, how we are reminded uh, again tonight in those songs of your sovereignty. Lord, that you are in charge, you are in control of all things, and we take great comfort in that, great comfort. And then, Lord, we're reminded tonight that you are a just God, that you are righteous, that you will set things straight, evil will be defeated. And then, Lord, we're also thankful for your grace, your love, and your mercy that's poured out upon us. Though undeserved, you have taken the steps necessary that makes it possible for us to be saved. You're an awesome, gracious God. Lord, we turn our attention now to your word. I ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Historians have an actual date in history for the event in the chapter that we're about to read. The chapter that we are about to read took place, interesting enough, on October 12th, 539 BC. So tomorrow will mark the 2,257th anniversary year of this event that we're about to read. This event took place in the ancient city of Babylon, the most powerful city on the planet at that time with all of its uh, temples and ziggurats and the uh, Hanging Gardens. Babylon was surrounded, if you remember, by double walls. It was thought to be an impenetrable city, very powerful. This event takes place right in the heart of that ancient city. Now, remember that when the Babylon Empire came to power under King Nebuchadnezzar, they defeated the southern kingdom of Judah. You remember they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the walls around the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple of Jerusalem. They came in. They slaughtered many of the Jews. Uh, many Jews were taken captive. And in that process, that young teenager, that young man named Daniel, was taken captive to Babylon and there he went through a three-year training program, graduated at the top of the class, became the highest-ranking member of the royal court of Babylon, and through the whole process, staying faithful to the living God. Credible story for Daniel. Well, here in Daniel chapter 5, 70 years have passed since Daniel was taken captive. The Medo-Persian Empire is now on the rise, and they're on the move, and they're gobbling up various lands, and they're becoming aggressively against the kingdom of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar has died. His grandson, named Belshazzar, is the reigning king of Babylon. And our chapter records... Belshazzar's last night as the king of Babylon. In fact, our chapter records Belshazzar's last night on planet Earth. And in fact, our chapter records the last night for the entire Babylonian Empire, October 12, 539 B.C. 
So let's get in there and let's see what happened on that night. Look at verse 1. It says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, and iron, wood, and stone. So good old King Belshazzar, he was a good old boy. He was a playboy. He was a party animal. He loved to throw wild parties in his royal courts, in his banquet hall. It seems that that was his consistent practice. And so here he is having a big party in the courts there. Thousands of people are in attendance. Uh, the who's who in Babylon crowd is there. Uh, the lords, the servants, friends, his wives, concubines, just a whole bunch of folks. And this is a heathen party. The emphasis of this party is to get drunk. The alcohol is flowing in excess. People are drinking. People are getting wasted. And there's probably a whole lot of sexual immorality taking place at this party, sexually lewd acts. I imagine some of the women are dancing seductively. There's flirtation and all kinds of carrying on. So this is a party where everyone's getting drunk and looking to hook up, if I could use current lingo. It was a scene that would look just like one of our modern day drinking parties. A bunch of people getting together for the sole purpose of getting drunk and meeting part partners. This would be a scene that you might see in a nightclub or a bar or a lounge. Christian, you should stay away from those venues. You should not be a part of those gatherings. What business do you have as a Christian attending a party where the emphasis is on getting drunk and hooking up with sexual partners? What business do you have in hanging out in bars or nightclubs or lounges where alcohol flows in excess and people are looking for sexual partners. Why go? Why be tempted? Especially if you came out of that lifestyle before you came to Christ. Stay away from it. Now, I have met Christians who say, I go to parties and I go to bars because I want to be a witness for Jesus Christ there. I want to share Jesus with people. I want to lead people to Christ. Really, really. Over the years, I have met more Christians that have blown it big time in places like that than Christians who have led people to Jesus Christ. It's not safe. Terrible decisions are made. Share Christ with your friends outside of the bar. Well, this is what's going on 
in the center of Babylon, they're having this wild drinking party. This party is also a sacrilegious party. At this party, they are mocking the living God of heaven. They're poking their fingers in God's eye. They're provoking them. Belshazzar, no doubt in a drunken stupor, says, Hey, I got a great idea. Let's go get those golden silver vessels that were stolen out of the temple in Jerusalem. Let's bring them out of the royal treasury and let's drink out of them. And so he gives the command and there they go. They go into the royal treasury and they get these holy golden silver vessels and turn them into wine goblets and beer mugs. And they begin drinking. Verse 4 says as they're drinking, they're praising their own gods of gold and bronze and silver and iron and wood. Utter blasphemy. And Belshazzar knew exactly what he was doing. He's challenging God. He's defying God. He's blaspheming God. By the way, God still has holy vessels today in the New Testament. What are God's holy vessels today? Yeah, it's a different, pose the question differently. Who are God's holy vessels today? If you're a Christian here tonight, you are God's vessel. You are his holy vessel. He has saved you. He has put his Holy Spirit in you. And I would pray that nothing ugly goes into your vessel. That that which is holy would go into your vessel. And that you would use your vessel for holiness, not profane things. You are precious. You are set apart. You belong to God. So it's a pagan drinking party. It's a blasphemous, sacrilegious party. And it's also a party that's a display of great arrogance, tremendous arrogance. Um, They are having this party with a false sense of security, an overly elevated opinion of their self-confidence. Because at this point, Belshazzar knows that the Medo-Persians are on the move. They're making gains against the Babylonian Empire. At this time, he's probably heard that many of the cities within the region of Babylon have already fallen. He's probably heard that the Medo-Persians are on their way to attack the main now capital city of Babylon. But he doesn't care. He's, he, basically, he's saying, nothing to worry about. Everything's cool. We don't have to worry about any Medo-Persians getting in our city. We got double walls around our city. You can't penetrate those. We've got supplies inside the city that will help us to withstand a 20-year-long siege. Nothing to worry about. All is good. Cheers. Party, party, party. We got nothing to worry about by the Medo-Persians. We got nothing to worry about concerning the living God. And so there they are. And they have no idea that death is knocking at their door that night. They have no idea that judgment day has come that very night. And God crashes their little party. Look at verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against 
each other. Now, again, I want to get the DVDs in heaven. I would love to see this scene. I hope they recorded it. Can you imagine this party, this revelry, all this sinful activity, all the noise, and all of a sudden, a giant floating hand appears with a finger outstretched. You can hear the screams. You can hear the gas. You can see the people looking into their cups thinking, dude, what did I drink? What is that? Everything becomes quiet, hush. Then that giant hand with that giant finger begins to write words on the plaster wall right beyond the lampstand, which, by the way, was probably the golden lampstand called the menorah that they had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem. Writes four words and then disappears. You imagine what that was like? It says Belshazzar was so terrified. His knees are literally knocking. He's, he's about to fall. Probably messed up his royal robes in some ways. Absolutely shocked. Not just at a hand appearing, but I think he knows whose hand that belongs to. And I think he suspects that he's in some trouble. So, after they get out of the shock, everyone looks at these four words. You know, when a giant hand writes words on a wall, you probably want to figure out what it means. So they all look at these four words and they can't make sense of it. So verse 7, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So he has this large cabinet of advisors, soothsayers, wise men, sorcerers, magicians, the brightest of the brightest in his kingdom, the wise men, all of his advisors, calls them in. Tell us the meaning of what was written on the wall. And whoever gets to... Whoever gets the interpretation, he gets a, a, a royal robe, you know, a gold chain, and he'll become third in command. Now, Belshazzar is a very wealthy man, and he usually solves problems by just writing a check. All right, so let's hire the guys. Let's come in. Let's pay them well. Let's have them figure it all out. The only problem is on Judgment Day, your checks are worthless. You can't buy your way out of judgment. His money will do no good. And it does no good with these wise guys. Because verse 8 says, Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. The best of the best cannot read it. Now, this was Aramaic. Um, it's believed that whatever was written was written enigmatically, that there were no vowels or vowel pointers, and that it was probably a bunch of consonants all smashed together. So they couldn't figure it out. And now they are bewildered. His top guys are not able to figure this out. Well, enter our hero Daniel into the story. Look at verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. Now, notice that this queen is not the wife to Belshazzar. 
This queen is Belshazzar's mother. King Nebuchadnezzar's daughter-in-law. So she's much older and she's been around a lot longer. And she's seen a lot that's happened in the palace. So here she comes. Verse 10, she comes in. It says, the queen spoke saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdoms of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. So, Daniel is in his 80s. He's about 85 years old at this point. He has been out of the limelight for 20 years. When Nebuchadnezzar was alive, he was chief of all the wise men, used mightily in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, basically led King Nebuchadnezzar to faith in the living God. Daniel interpreted all these dreams. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar died, he was retired. He was demoted. They put him in the mailroom. For 20 years... He has been out of action. 20 years later, this queen remembers her, remembers him. And the reputation of this guy. There's a man. The spirit of the living God is in him. He had supernatural ability, supernatural wisdom. To explain dreams and riddles and enigmas. Yes, I remember him. Belshazzar, you should call him in. And he'll be able to help you out. Now, Daniel, such a faithful man of God. Definitely one of my heroes in the scripture. When he comes on the scene, as you're going to read, he's still a faithful man of God at the age of 85. At the age of 17, he was faithful to God. At the age of 85, he was faithful to God. When he was in the limelight, above all the royal court, he was faithful to God. When he was hidden away in exile for 20 years, he's still faithful to God. He is the greatest example, one of the greatest examples in all of Scripture for what you and I are called to be in this culture. Absolutely faithful to the living God. They find Daniel. I don't know where he was. They bring him into the courts. There's probably a lot of quiet as he's walking in. Remember, he's older now. He takes him longer to walk. I see this dramatic effect. Here comes Daniel. He stands before Belshazzar. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel? Who is one of the captives from Judah? Whom my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard of you. That the spirit of God is in you. And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. By the way, they couldn't even identify the words, let alone give the interpretation. 
Verse 16, and I've heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. What is it with the purple robe and the gold chains with this guy? By the way, this king won't have a kingdom to give by the end of this very night. Now, I love how Daniel responds to him in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. I love that. Keep your money. Keep your wealth. I won't be bought. I'll just freely tell you what these words mean. Okay. Before he gives the interpretation of the words and identifies the words, Daniel acts as a prophet and brings a very strong message to Belshazzar. Verse 18. O king... The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride... He was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses." Belshazzar, I knew your dad or your granddad. I served with Nebuchadnezzar. He was a great king. God had put him in that position of authority. And he knew that God had put them in that position of authority. But there was proud, pride in his heart. There was an arrogance in his heart. And when that was discovered, God deposed him. And you may remember the story. Nebuchadnezzar became like a wild beast. You remember this? He literally became homeless for seven years, long fingernails, eating grass, went totally insane for seven years. After the seven years are up, God brings him back in, and he agrees now that God is in charge, not him. And Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, you're right. Your God is in charge. Gives testimony. Writes the story down, by the way. It's in Daniel chapter 4. Proclaims that the God of Daniel be worshipped. Here's a great king who was humbled by the Lord and came to a truth about who the living God is. Of Daniel was. Verse 22, Daniel continues, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. See, now Belshazzar saw what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He knew about the seven years. He saw how God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He read the document that Nebuchadnezzar had written. He was aware of the living God. But he didn't humble himself. Verse 23. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And notice what he says to him here. And the God who holds your breath 
in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Belshazzar, you know what you're doing is wrong. You've been acting in pride. You have been blaspheming the very God who holds your breath in his hands. The very God who holds all your ways, who holds your very life. Now, I think Belshazzar is beginning to read the writing on the wall. That's the best I got. I'm here all week. I think he now knows trouble's coming. Man, you get a message like that. So now, Daniel will do what he was sent for. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, mine, mo. Just making sure you're with me. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, eupharsin. All right. He was able to distinguish four words from what that finger had written. The others weren't even able to do that. Mene comes from one of their coins called the Mina, about 50 shekels worth. Comes from a root word that means to number. Tekel comes from a word that is related to shekel, and it means to weigh. You far seen also in its singular, Perez, is the half shekel. And it means to divide. So in our language, what God wrote on that wall was numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And then he gives the interpretation, verse 26. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. In other words... Turn out the lights, king, the party's over. Time's up, Babylon. Time's up, Belshazzar. Now, this is a bold thing. This, I mean, you're standing before a king and you give him this message. You know, you think Daniel might have been tempted to lie. Oh, everything's going to be just fine, king. No, he told them the exact truth. You know, there are a lot of people that want to avoid the whole subject of God's judgment. They don't want to bring it up. They, they, or if they do, they sugarcoat it. Daniel was not like that. He shared the truth about God's judgment. All right, so verse 29, then, <laughs> I love it. Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple, put a chain of gold around his neck, made a proclamation concerning that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar still thinks he has some time. He figures, well, you know, I'll do what I said. He doesn't know that he has no time. Verse 30 says, that very night... Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That very night, King Belshazzar was killed and the Medo-Persians took over. Now historians 
tell us how they did it. I take you back to the picture of the city. The Medo-Persians did come to Babylon and why they're having that big party in all their confidence, you know. Nobody can come through our walls. Well, at night, you notice the Euphrates River flows right in the middle of the city. Well, at night, way back here, a ways back, they diverted the river. They built a little dam and diverted the river. They just went right into the city under the wall. Right in that empty, muddy riverbank. So they came right in, and right as they're there, boasting with all this confidence and all this false security, that very night, they came in. They killed Belshazzar on the spot. Darius the Mede received the kingdom. 1012. 539 B.C. God's judgment fell upon the city of Babylon. Now, gang, this story teaches us something very important about the living God. He is just. He is righteous. And God will judge the wicked. God will judge the rebels. God will judge the unjust. God will judge sinners. And, and, and it's, not, it's not like, well, if. No, he will. God is holy and righteous and just. And in his holiness, righteousness, and justice, as part of his character, he must judge. And God will judge the nations. God will judge all the nations. You know, I know here on the planet, we all divide ourselves and group ourselves into different nations and we feel like we're strong. We're, we're this strong nation. God is much bigger than any nation. In Psalm chapter 2, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel altogether against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. There's the nations talking. You know how God responds to that? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Psalm 33, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That's what God says. In Isaiah chapter 40. Behold, the nations are a drop in a bucket. And are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look. He lifts up the continents as a very little thing. Isaiah 40 also. It is he who sits above the circles of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. The living God is sovereign over the nations. He's more powerful than any nation. And he will judge the nations. Here he judged the Babylonian Empire. Before the Babylonians, he judged the Assyrian Empire. After the Babylonian Empire, he will judge the Medo-Persian Empire. After the Medo-Persian Empire, he'll judge the Grecian Empire. 
After the Grecian Empire, he'll judge the Roman Empire. The book of Revelation tells us that at the last day scenario, when the Antichrist is in charge, that all the nations of the earth will gather against God and he will destroy them. And it will happen. God is the judge. And God will judge even the nation that belongs to him. If that nation deserts him. God judged the northern kingdom of Israel. By the Assyrian empires. God judged the southern kingdom of Judah with the Babylonian empire. That is the thought that terrifies me when I think about our country. Because I believe the United States of America was put in place by God. I think God's blessing was upon our nation. It was founded upon Christian principles. Don't let anybody tell you differently. This nation was built upon Christian principles. And we have gone so far away from that. We've turned our backs on the Lord. We've taken God out of every sector of our society. You look at the immorality and the filth in the United States of America. Years ago, I'm talking years ago, it was Billy Graham said, it was Billy Graham who said, If God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was years ago. And you know what? I think a lot of times in America, we have this false sense of security. Oh, look, we're great. And we have this highly elevated self-confidence. God could judge this country overnight, in one night, if he wanted to. In one night, the United States of America could be judged. No more freedom. The football players would no longer have a flag (laughs) to disrespect. Could all be lost. Now, I just, what do you think would happen in a world with the United States of America? Gone. He hasn't done it yet because, although I think we can read the writing on the wall, it will happen eventually. But I don't think he's done it yet because the salt and the light. A lot of his people are still here. And I'm telling you right now, we need Daniels all over the United States of America. Faithful saints who will stand for the truth. Continue to be salt and light. But the lesson here is God will judge. By the way, God will also judge individuals. October 12, 539 B.C., King Belshazzar, the individual, the man, was judged. God judged him. The Bible is very clear. All of us are accountable to the God who made us. We will all stand before God one day. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Now, let that, that, should ter- let that terrify you. One day you'll stand before the living God. 
And when that day comes, it's over. Your fate is sealed. You won't be able to write a check. God won't care about how much money you have. You won't be able to come with your list and say, here's all the good things I did. Because you could never be perfect enough. Now, it's utterly terrifying to me to think that there are so many people living their lives and they have no clue that one day they'll be judged. They'll stand before God. And how many people walk this earth in this false sense of security? Oh, I'll be okay. I'll make it. And the truth is, the Bible is clear on this, we all deserve judgment. All of us. Verse 27 applies to all of us. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Um, In order for us to be right with God, we have to be perfectly righteous like he is. There can be no sin or wickedness in us. And by that standard, we're found wanting, aren't we? Some of us have lived better lives than others, but we've, nobody's lived a perfect life. We all fall short of God's standard. And therefore, we all deserve judgment. And God who is holy and just and righteous will judge the sinners. But aren't you glad that we also know that God is a God of grace and love and mercy. And God loves us. And in his grace and in his mercy, he's provided solutions. He's provided a way by which we can avoid judgment. God gave his son, the righteous one, left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect life, no sin in Jesus. And he came for the express goal of giving his life away as a sacrifice. On that cross, all of our sins were placed upon him. And he died the death we deserve to die. He paid the price. And on the third day, he rose again. And the scripture says that if we will now place our faith in Jesus Christ, all of our sins are forgiven. We are placed in Jesus Christ. We are given his righteousness. Now we measure up perfectly. Not because we're perfect, but because we are in Jesus and he's perfect. You know, the cross is this amazing thing. If you think about it, it is the perfect blend of God's justice and God's grace. What do you see at the cross? Justice, judgment, sins were paid for. Jesus paid for them. But then you also see grace and love and mercy because we as sinners didn't have to pay for it. God's Son paid the price for us that we might escape. Listen. If you will place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you allow him to be your savior, if you'll admit to him that you need him, you will not face a judgment day. You will become a child of God. And when you die, you will go straight into his presence and you will have heaven for the rest of eternity. Now, if you have not received Jesus Christ, then you will be judged. For your sins.
Respond to the grace now. And Christian, never lose the awe. Never lose the awe of what Christ did for you. Let it be the thing that drives you. Let's close in a time of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, the idea that you are just and righteous and will judge. Causes some people pause. Yet we should be thankful for that because evil needs to be punished. Terrible things have been committed by people throughout history. And there should be repercussion. You will right every wrong. You will balance the scales. Your judgment is true and righteous and just and deserved. And yet, Lord, as we consider that, we also recognize in our own lives that we are so sinful, that we deserve that same kind of punishment and judgment. And yet, by your grace, you have made it possible for us to be forgiven. Lord, for the tremendous sacrifice that you made on that cross. Lord, I pray as Christians, as your people, we'd never forget that. That would motivate, Lord, the way we live. That we'd remember every day that you made our bodies holy. We're your vessels.